All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth installment of Robot Thought Leaders. I'm Zach Tompkinson here with Chris Savoya, hosting Etienne Lacroix from Vention. And we're going to talk today about Etienne's background and how he got into creating Vention, as well as where he sees uh, his company, as well as uh, the robot and automation market headed in the future. So without further ado, um, we'll, uh, we'll get into it. Thanks, Zach. And thanks, Chris, for, for having me today. Happy to have you. Great. So Etienne, uh, I know you've, you've started Vention uh, for a few years, but uh, can you talk about uh, your previous employer and what caused you to create the idea of Vention and then that process of the kind of the first founding days of, uh, of Vention? Of course. So, you know, today I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to be the, the founder and CEO of Vention. For those that followed the, the startup, we are a manufacturing automation platform. Uh, we help uh, manufacturing professional to design and automate their shop floor by himself. But the, the idea came way before. Um, and I'll, I'll rewind back a little bit, Zach. I'll, I'll go back to probably Etienne when I'm 11 years old, because that's really <laughs> where I discovered uh, the passion for product design. Um, for those that, that know Vention, we are kind of an industrial Lego to some extent. And there's no sure. surprise that myself uh, back at 11 years old was a big Lego technique advocate. Uh, I've probably had all of the models at home. And that's really what triggered my passion for product design. Um, uh, around that age, I had a full-size plane built of a lawnmower engine in my backyard. Uh, figure out a ways to get the lawnmower engine to work with the you know, shaft at the horizontal, so the motor was yeah. not puffing oil. Yeah. Uh, a little bit later, I was deep into designing my own downhill bikes. Uh, that was in the heyday of mountain biking, and, and uh, that led one thing led to another. Uh, by um, 19 years old, I was working full time in a small engineering department. Back then, being based in Montreal, which is a, a big aerospace city, um, we were doing a lot of industrial equipment for the manufacturing of lending gear, mostly back then, the early 2000 for the A380 and the 787 lending gear. Um, and you know, did a little bit of robot automation with you know industrial robots, uh, automated equipment. And um, around that age, I uh, for those that remember that book, I fall into a book called uh, uh, Jack Welch, Straight from the Gut. Uh, it's an old book from the CEO of GE. And that book blew my mind in terms of me wanting to become a great engineer. To me, uh, decided to become a business person. So no surprise that around that age, uh, around 22 years old, started to work at GE uh, while working. Uh, you know, I was working pretty much full time while doing my undergrad in mechanical engineering, uh, keeping that deep passion for product design and uh, at the time was mostly in the LED uh, LED lighting space uh, uh, and uh, yeah. that passion for um, you know product design industrial technology continue with me uh, uh, from there uh, around that age still around 22 23 years old I was a big CAD or computer aid system fan I probably had all the CAD software installed on my computers from Pro E to mechanical desktop back then to Kitsia to SolidWorks uh, uh, Solid Edge I've, I've basically put it all of those software and one thing led to another uh, being more, more in business um, I decided to do the MBA and like a lot of the MBA people uh, finish school with a big death, uh, which is a great <laughs> way to get paid back by doing a little bit of management consulting. So I spent five years at McKinsey. Uh, uh, I finished Very as an cool. associate principal, mostly in the product development practice. 
So I had a chance to work with tons of companies on all five continents on technologies such as aircraft, auto, power sport, power tool. Um, so touch a lot of industries. And it's only after all those years uh, that the idea of Vention finally came about uh, and left the management consulting career to, uh, to start the business. That sounds good. That's a great introduction. A lot to unpack from that. We're going to come back around with some questions for sure. Before we jump into Vention, I think it's worth kind of staying on that topic a little bit. So it's funny. Did you know uh, Esben from UR was a big Lego guy too? And if you go to UNSA actually to see the UR headquarters, we still have, you know, the original, like what they call the the first prototype of the UR, which is kind of like this, uh, not six axis, but it's a some kind of robotic arm built out of Lego Connect. Out of Lego, yeah. Uh, all that stuff, yeah. So very cool. And same is very much true for me. I still have the Legos kind of in my father's house back home, yeah. still hanging up on the shelves and stuff. So it's good. To my hear. daughter is now playing with those. So yeah, the same. Yeah. Set. Yeah. So uh, where did you go to undergraduate school for your engineering degree? And what was the major that you had? Um, so the way Quebec system uh, or being based in Montreal and Quebec and the province of Quebec and Canada, the school system works where you do this college layer. I did a technical college in mechanical engineering where it's very hands-on, very rapidly you're exposed to CNC machine, robotics, 3D design, CAM software. And then I did my undergrad in mechanical engineering at ETS, École mm -hmm. de Technologie Supérieure, which is also a very applied um, engineering school where most of the, the, the work is actually for uh, client, for companies that have core engineering problems to solve. Um, uh, and yeah, finish, I think back in 2007, uh, uh, right, right nice. off the, in the Perfect eight time. days of, uh, yeah, 2007, uh, yep. and yeah. So I think, uh, that university feeds a lot of the robotics and in, in industrial automation talent that you see in, you know, Montreal and in Quebec and in all those, uh, areas in Canada. Is that correct? Yeah, we're, we're lucky, right? I, 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 by far, I don't think it's the biggest in North America, but there's a good little pool of, of people that are really passionate about the renewal of, of robotics. Uh, we have the folks from Academic coming from there, the folks from Kinova coming from there. Uh, there's a big tie to the robotic guy in, in Quebec City as well. Um, yeah. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a one of those great schools where there's a, there's, the cluster is big enough so we can have a little impact on, on the industry. That's, yeah, that's very, cool. very cool. That's very cool. Well, maybe... Uh... If there is any contacts over there of someone that we might might want to interview in the future, we'd love to uh, we'd love to kind of cross cross notes because I think that could be a really interesting one as well. Ilian mm -hmm. Bonez would be a great guy to interview. Is very very PhD ish, but uh, yeah. great 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 guy and would be pleased to do that. Cool, very cool. cool. Yeah. Um, so when you were at McKinsey and you were going through product development helping other companies, essentially, I'm assuming, identify their next product and how they were going to go and build their roadmap. Is that, is that what you were working on? Yeah, we had the, the field of work uh, at McKinsey was uh, in product development, touch a little bit of cost reduction, uh, like a lot of companies okay. love to use consultants sure. for that. It touched also on product roadmap, but also on how you structure engineering team for impact. So we've played a lot around uh, reporting structure, incentive, um, so team can either foster more innovation or more efficiency in their um, engineering practices. So a touch of, of all of that, um, it went as far as to developing um, uh, 3D print uh, powder, uh, metal-based 3D printing powder technology for uh, you know, new companies and, and so on. So it was pretty broad, very uh, but very um, always very close to the product itself. And interestingly, because a lot of management consultants tend to be um, 
more uh, on the strategic side of things. And uh, we were a little cluster again at McKinsey that could actually go very deep into the science and yep. challenge plastic specs and you know, uh, material selection and design and so on choices. Also looking um, at so the engineering more than just the strategy, but really going in and looking at the formation of the product. Very full stack, right? Really deep in the design choices up to the, how, you, how we're gonna make money and how we're gonna have a business out of that, out of that product. So very, very full stack. That's really so cool. when you started at McKinsey, uh, how did you start? You know, did you start as one of the engineers on one of those teams providing engineering support and work your way up or, you know, those five years kind of, how did it go? Yeah. So I started McKinsey right after MBA, like a lot of, uh, like a lot of MBAs that just finish. Um, you know, when you, you join, uh, most management, uh, firm, you don't really decide where you go. Uh, you're assigned to projects. So I, I did my fair share of teamwork, as I as I call it. Uh, again, being based in Montreal, we did a lot of mining uh, back then. So a lot of a mining strategy and a capex and opex strategy. But as you uh, you climb up the rank of the firm um, and you have more and more of a voice around the table to decide where you're gonna create impact. And I was. Um, Lucky enough to, uh, uh, you know, work with a lot of car company in the U.S. Uh, power Sport, Power Tool, yep. um, and you develop your own expertise. Uh, spending again, uh, you know, uh, around five years at uh, at GE, probably four years in, in industrial equipment design before, um, you know, product design was very very uh, ingrained as a skill set. Yep. So it was easy to go into other organization afterward after probably around nine years of of, of hands-on experience to go help other companies, you know, think, think, you know, across everything, right. From the product and profit and growth mm -hmm. consideration up to the design choices on at the product level. Um, so cool. it, 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 it doesn't happen, uh, you know, overnight, it happens uh, over a five year journey, but luckily at the end, um, I was doing exclusively work in, in that industry. Yeah. And that's where you met Pat. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, so interestingly, my CBDO, Chief Business <coughs> Development Officer here at Vention, is also a, an ex-McKinsey. Uh, there's a few other. Uh, Pat was mostly in the IIoT practice uh, at McKinsey back then, so we were mostly sharing offices. Uh, but uh, uh, and, uh, and obviously, we're colleagues, uh, but haven't worked together per se at McKinsey beyond sharing offices. But Pat was one of the uh, few that saw the very first version of the Vention business plan uh, back in mm -hmm. 2014, 2015, before I had even uh, considered leaving actually McKinsey. Uh, so the, uh, uh, yeah, saw the first vision uh, and then joined uh, around 2018, just a few years later. Yeah, sure. Cool. And so when you, when you came up, how, can you talk a little bit about when the vision came to you and, and the process of leaving McKinsey to, to start, to start Vention? Yeah. So there's a, there's a, a very uh, rational aspect, and there's a very philosophical aspect to it. I'll touch on both. Um, remember, I was a CAD addict. I had all the CAD software installed on my computer, so I really kept in touch with that industry. And around 2014, there's something that happened where is WebGL, which is a library we use to do 3D in the browser, really got good enough to do engineering-grade 3D in, in Chrome or in Internet Explorers and so on. And, and to me, that mm. changed everything because as soon as this was true, mm. you could imagine that workflow I was used to from finding parts on large industrial distributor website, bringing them to SolidWorks, uh, designing a bunch of custom parts, then going back on those distributor website to place orders, all that manual workflow that used roughly 15 different environment 
could actually be combined into one digital thread. And sure. that wasn't true until 2014. And, and, and that was stuff that, you were doing every day at McKinsey, or at least oftentimes in your spare time. You even know, you more in my this. earlier days, right? Even more when I was in that engineering firm or even more at GE, I've navigated that workflow probably hundreds of times. Um, and as soon as WebGL was true, now you could stitch it all together, right? You can select your component, design online, automate you know, order, and then assemble, which is obviously offline, but most of those tasks can now take place in the same environment. So that was really the trigger points uh, in terms of having that idea. And I remember I was in actually in Italy, in Florence, uh, for a wedding back then. Uh, and uh, when I had this, uh, this, when it clicked in my head, the first thing I did is I started to design all the modular part possible and try to recreate all the jig design and equipment design I had done since I was 19 years old. And the question to answer was, would it be possible to Legofy everything? Because if you can Legofy, that means you can have the part on the shelf. That means if somebody ordered design online, they can order yeah. and we can ship next day, right? Shipping next day was, was possible. Amazon was doing it. So there was no reason right. we were not able to do it with the right algorithm. It was more a matter, can it be Legofy? Can industrial automation be Legofy? Um, so that's the rational aspect. That was very kind of uh, a discovery, uh, um, logical discovery process. Now, so you leaving, went back and you try to remember every design that you had at done a high level, or yeah, something like that. Yeah, like you know, all that uh, stuff. So it didn't necessarily start with extrusions or anything like that. It started with the ideas of taking those fixtures, those jigs, as you said, and just yep. trying to remember them in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then making sure that all those custom parts I had designed could actually come up with concept where they're not they're not custom parts, where they can be reused mm -hmm. from design to design. Um, to speed up that that workflow, of, um, that was in 2014, right? And it took a little bit of time to flesh out that business plan. But we had much more fundamental question, right? Would people accept to work outside of their normal CAD? Could we legify mm -hmm. the thing? Would people accept to self-assemble? All of those were kind of a, a showstopper because if one of those things was, you know, wrong or incorrect, the business model didn't work, right? So when we started Vention, it was uh, uh, you know it was a big bet. And which brings me to the philosophical aspect of that yeah. decision, um, which is, um, you know, at McKinsey, you, you probably earn more than you can spend, right? Just in terms of, and I come from a very middle-class family. So having money in my bank account was like something very weird, I guess, for, mm -hmm. for me back then, but it was already above what I needed to have an enjoyable life. Um, and, but leaving that, you know, the leaving a firm like this where I honestly had a good time. I was doing product design with amazing client on amazing products. Uh, um, it's a big decision. So I came up with three mental tests. Uh, you can decide to keep or cut that part out. But the, the first test was if I was to die today, would I be proud of myself? And that was a question that kept coming back, right? Becoming a partner in a management firm uh, was not, never something we really aspired to. I have a lot of respect for people that did this. I wasn't far away from it. I was probably six months to a year from it. Uh, but even when I got designated associate partner, I was a bittersweet success because mm. it was also a reminder that I was not pursuing my life's passion. Mm. I was close to it, but I was not in the action, right? Being a management consultant is like tuning your violin instead of playing it, right? So, the, so you know, that was this question Great of enough. if I was to die today, would I be proud? Tuning somebody else's violin, yeah. And Correct. Right? Etienne, what age were you at that time? I was, uh, I just had my uh, um, second daughter, my first daughter. So I was probably 31, 31, 31, mm -hmm. 32. Um, the second test was if I was to earn the same amount of money, would I be here today? 
Uh, and the reality is you're not going to earn the same amount of money elsewhere. But if the answer is consistently no, it's also a strong reminder that you're just not pursuing your own life passion. And life is short, right? Life is short. And mm-hmm. if you're not, you know, after a certain salary, you're not, you can do whatever you want pretty much all of the time. You don't have to make so much sacrifice. Um, but if you're not pursuing life passion, and I'm a workaholic, I work, you know, 18 to 19 hours every single day. So it has to be fun. It has to be yeah. fun every single minute of it. So that was my second test. And my third test was, are you in the right dog race? And, you know, you know, Zach, you're in sales. You're probably a very competitive person. So am I, right, in my own way. And you know, I, I like to win. Obviously, like like most like most uh, business-minded people. And and the the winning at McKinsey again, that that race that I was on, because it's really a race, was just not bringing me where I wanted to go. So, am I the right dog race? Me to being successful as a, a businessman was more interesting than becoming successful as a management consulting for me. So when you when you say or was I in the right dog race, are you saying that the race specific to like the industry or like the project that you are working on or just your really career your career race right? Okay. McKinsey, it's a you know you, you get in you have roughly six to seven years to become a partner to up or out. Everything was working super well, uh, but the finality of that race is you're a partner. Um, and, uh, and, and it's all consuming, right? It takes everything of your life. Uh, I always say McKinsey, you have 1.5 passion, passion number one, McKinsey. And, uh, you know, the 0.5 is probably your partner or your significant other. Uh, <laughs> you have to cut pretty much everything else of your life because it consume everything. Hmm. Uh, um, but if, if that's not the right race, it, it, it can be harsh. So anyway, for me, it was that question was, uh, it was the wrong race for me. I love to win, uh, but I, I rather win on a, on a play field that I, I enjoy playing. That's all. Or that you created. That yeah. I, or that we created. Yeah. Yeah. Very, Very cool. cool. So when, when you had the idea of Vention to, to Legify, what, talk about the process of leaving um, McKinsey and, um, you know, how did you tap into the funding are you yeah. family and friends funding? Just, you know, were you strictly funding it and saying, I'm not taking a salary. I'm just going to fund it with my own uh, bank account that I had saved up from my time working there. What strategies did you deploy in when you left McKinsey in your first year? Yeah. Yeah, or so- leveraging McKinsey itself, you know, in the context that you had there. So interestingly, McKinsey offered to uh, finance me to start venture, and I refused. Uh, I, I don't think it was the right type of financing. Fi- money comes with the with ties, right? And it was not the, the right thing for the business. Um, when I uh, left McKinsey, um, Mo- Montreal, and like Mo- like Boston, like you know, they're a small community, right? You, you never leave. Leaving McKinsey took me six months because I announced my resignation, but I was serving a lot of client, a lot of local client, uh, all of which I've pretty much become client of Vention. Uh, and if you, uh, if a CEO sign up to do a, a high paycheck project with you and you're announcing you're leaving, he's going to punch you in the face with a baseball bat. Yeah. Um, so you have to deliver on your commitment. Plenty of time. Yeah. So I, you know, I delivered all the commitment I had made uh, to all the person I had made them, including all the client I was serving. It took me six months, then left. Um, and I had roughly two years of, of money in my bank account and a six-year-old daughter. Um, so that was just, okay, I can sustain myself for a little while. Uh, interestingly, my, my uh, uh, um, partner at the time probably was not aware of all that uh, <laughs> or didn't wanted to uh, understand it too much. But yeah, I had no income for the first year or so. Uh, but very rapidly and having tied to Boston myself, um, uh, which is the birthplace of the cat industry, 
it was very natural to go uh, seek funding in that city. Um, so I've met very rapidly with Bolt, um, uh, Axel Bishara uh, at Bolt Venture. And Axel was part of SolidWorks before. Uh, and very mm -hmm. rapidly, um, Axel got the concept of what we were trying to create. Sure. And um, in one of those afternoon meetings, I'm at Unshape uh, in, in Boston with John Erstick, yeah. which is the, the, the founder of SolidWorks, with right. John Stevenson, who was the VP um, engineering of, of PTC back then for pro engineers. So we have all those all gray hair around. fodder of CAD yeah. uh, in the room listening to my pitch deck. Yeah. And, and most awesome. of them invested and Axel invested. Uh, and when Axel cool. got in, um, the rest of the investors follow quite rapidly. So that was pre-seed almost. Um, Back sure, in the yeah. fall of 2016, and how many employees did you have? We did a little pre-seed on the PowerPoint deck. How many uh, we employees two, did you have? Uh, two. Uh, uh, so I found my co-founder uh, Max uh, Windish, uh, and Max, for those who uh, know him, is a is a philosopher, classic musician, uh, was admitted in medicine, is a mathematician, is obviously a software developer, but is a, wow. um, I have no shame to admit that he's significantly smarter than I am. Um, <laughs> and uh, Max and I were introduced by the CEO of Unity 3D uh, here in Montreal. Yeah. Um, and Max has spent his career mostly working under Paul Meritz. Paul uh, in his career has been the CEO of VMware, uh, Cloud Foundry, Pivotals, uh, a little bit of EMC, was a former exec at Microsoft. So Max had a really world-class career uh, in cloud before cloud was called cloud, but also Max and the career before that in video game, being based in Montreal and uh, uh, with, with Softimage and Kedara. So I, I found a co-founder who uh, not only had the same work ethic and I had, but the new 3D, new cloud, new database. Um, uh, and obviously he's, he's older than me uh, to have seen all those technologies since the mid nineties. Uh, and the good thing is when you deal with a co-founder of that age, he's done everything from firmware, up to cloud, right? They've done, you know, they've they've done full Watched stack. Um, all change in the market. Yeah. So today, this come very handy, especially at Vention, where we are full cloud. We have our control platform that requires tons of firmware uh, development and up to obviously a fairly sophisticated cloud stack. Uh, and and Max can obviously uh, help along all those layers. Um, so Vention would not have happened if it wasn't of of me and Max meeting. And, uh, and having very similar values and, and ethic around how to, build, um, how to build that business. Never had the pleasure to meet Max, but we've talked about him a lot over a couple of beers at the end. And it seems like he's a great, uh, unique guy with a ton of different interests. And it sounds like, you know, with all of his music's passions and his philosophy and everything, like uh, sometimes software is the last thing that he wants to talk about, you know. He's, uh, he's one of a kind. He's one of a kind. And, and again, Vention would not have existed if it wasn't of, of my force and his force really meeting up and, and, and making it works. Because you, especially in the early days, right, you spend more time with your co-founder than, uh, than your wife and kids. So that <laughs> this is a wedding. It needs to work. Uh, and it, and it worked very, very rapidly. Yeah. Um, so that was the early days. And, and from there, cool. um, you know, Vention is a is a hard business to understand, right? I remember some VC were telling me, so you guys do overpriced shelving. Uh, and <laughs> obviously they did not understand the vision we were trying to go after. And especially at the beginning, we had 70 Lego parts, um, nothing in robotics, nothing in automation, only structural equipment. Sure. We had great client. Uh, Tesla was a client back then and a couple of big names like this, but the, the vision forward was really hard to understand. Uh, um, and uh, 
um, it took a couple of individuals to really step in at the right time. Um, and most recently, uh, a big stepping stone for us was Ajay, uh, Ajay Agraval from Bain, also based in Boston. And uh, Ajay, um, uh, I guess one of the, his uh, main deal or achievement as a VC with Bain uh, Capital Venture was um, Kiva System, which has what has yeah. become Amazon Robotics. Yeah. So when we met at Jay, it was clear that it was the right, um, the right fit. Also an ex-McKinsey, uh, an ex-Harvard. Uh, ex so we had a lot of tie and connection, even though we never yeah. met each other. We, we were uh, very well connected. And, we, um, and that was it your makes series. sense for us to do a uh, business together. That was for round A. Yeah, yeah Series A, um, which was your 17 million uh, Canadian. Um, Correct. Yeah. What you have that reported as, which was, uh, what, 2019? Yeah, I think that was towards the, uh, we announced that in 2019. I think it was close uh, late 2018, but uh, we've been pretty mm -hmm. diligent one round per year. Um, now we can afford to space them out a little bit more, but uh, just, the, in the early days, valuation changed so quickly that you just want to raise more often uh, smaller amounts. So. Yeah, but yeah. and so you had, but you had you had your Series B this year, correct? Uh, yeah. Um, $38 million? Yeah, we did the 38 Canadian um, with Georgian partners. Um, I, I like to describe Georgian as the Sequoia of Canada, uh, you know, uh, in a sense that it's probably the best firm that we can you know, find up north. Um, we're, uh, we're very lucky. We brought Emily Walsh on our board as well. A very smart woman to, uh, to our board. Um, and, uh, you know, Georgian is going to be with us for a, a long ride. It's a pretty substantial fund um, here from an asset under management perspective. And, um, yeah, we just closed that. We announced that, uh, I think, in June this year. It was closed a little bit before the pandemic. Um, uh, so we're, we were uh, lucky uh, uh, lucky campers from a timing perspective. Yeah. C congratulations on that, as I wonder what that would have looked like if it were, you know, just post-pandemic and if that would have uh, impacted the valuation at all, you know, just with, I'm sure, how every business slowed a little bit. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about how your, your business has, you know, changed in the pandemic. But I, I want to come back to that because I, I want to ask a question back on when when you first had come out and, and you were targeting, as you said, overpriced shelving was one of the you know uh, feedback that you had gotten from a VC. You said, you know, at that point we weren't focused on robotics and automation. We were just focused on on being a CAD software that people would buy. You know, you had seventy pieces of aluminum extrusion at that time. What what caused Legos you to pivot beyond the extrusion? Legos yeah, 70 Lego parts to some extent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Uh, what? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, excuse me. Um, yeah, that's what I meant. But what caused you to pivot into um, other avenues and adding in, you know, robotics and automation as a part of that? So I wouldn't call that a pivot. It's more about in which order you build a vision of vention because it's a humongous undertaking to build a CAD software, a small sure. PLM software a PLC programming software, a PLC, you know, now we have 800 Lego parts. There's an order uh, that this needs to be built on and you cannot build everything all at once because nothing will get done. So we had to start with structural. That was a way to get the sales going quickly, get our foot into great account that will become recurring and show traction. And we started that with a couple of Lego parts, a CAD software, a cloud-based CAD software that was functional for just a few use cases, but not all of them. And as we, uh, you know, we progress, um, it became very clear to us that Vention was a great fit for Cobot because yep. of the uh, value of simplicity and accessibility that we wanted to bring in the space of machine design. 
Cobot wanted to bring that in the space of, of robotics, especially self-serve robotics. So it was a, it was a perfect fit. Um, and very rapidly, a connection happened between obviously Vention and UR. And um, there was opportunity to create value at that interface because robot never lives in the robot cell alone. They live in the robot cells with part presentation. They live with a, with a, a range extender, with a pedestal. Uh, there's other equipments around as well. Uh, so there was an opportunity to kind of um, uh, amplify the robots by bringing the surrounding of it. Uh, so we decided to work on the surrounding um, uh, and not touching the robot, not touching the end of arm tooling and focus on those on those opportunities that we, we feel were present around the robot cell. So today robotic is, is a, you know, it's a good portion of our revenue. It's not the majority of it, but sure. it's a, it's a great um, it's a great proportion. We're still very involved in more traditional manufacturing equipment yeah. and um, PLC bays industrial automation equipment as well. Yep. And combined at uh, those three vertical will probably you know define all of our all of our revenue, right? Robotics, more traditional industrial automation, and just more conventional manufacturing equipment. And I, yeah, I think I, I, the word pivot, I, I guess, is really more geared towards you shifting your entire focus when really you just more expanded, you know, your horizon or adding your capabilities in different verticals that you were targeting. What, what verticals do you see that you want to add, you know, in the future? You know, the, there, there's a topic we're super passionate about at Advention, which is if you think about manufacturing today, especially the high throughput factories, they've been automated for years and they have, um, you know, they have very good offering, product offering to serve those factories. But vast majority of manufacturing in the United States, Canada and elsewhere is not high throughput. It's actually higher mix, lower volume. And most of those manufacturers today aren't automated. And if they're trying to use more oh. traditional technology to automate with this, the costs very become prohibitive mm. and they're high mix. So that means their payback mm. period needs to be very short because sure. their contract land is very, very small. Um, so if they're trying to use traditional technology, traditional PLC sensor and so on, plus add the cost of system integration afterward, most of the time, the business case just don't make sense for them. Yeah. And I think that's a great, that's a great market. And you know, um, you are and other cobot companies have I've seen that opportunity. You are definitely first to help those manufacturers continue to automate. And I think this is a place where there is not yet an offering with the, with the other component you need to automate your, your shop floor. And that's a place we're super excited about. So the, um, th this market, uh, it's not only uh, you know, um, market share grab, it's, it's really market expansion. And there's a real social aspect to it, which is we just empower manufacturers to stay more competitive here in North America, which is, is a great, great mission in itself, right? Very interesting. So I wanted to circle back earlier. You talked about it in McKinsey that one of the focuses was on the team design, you know, whether it's for efficacy and efficiency or for, you know, design considerations, right? Uh, how did you, when you first started, so you and Max kind of had this idea, right? You started going, you had a, a year of salary to pay yourself out and Max was probably, I guess, paying for himself too or something. We were actually not, we didn't pay ourselves for the first year actually. So that's- that, You didn't, so you're yeah, learning yeah, out of sayings. I could uh, make my household live, but I was right. not paying myself. Yeah. So at that point, like, you know, you sat down with him, you know, you have the world in front of you. You have all these three, three major pieces of business and many more potential avenues to go down to. How did you start to lay out your design to uh, for your team and your organizational structure to be able to get to that? 
Yeah, uh, it's a great question, Chris. Um, we had developed a, a concept, we call that aggressive prioritization. And it's uh, for a lot of software developer, that was a little bit of a shock to understand that. And our, we were telling our software developer, if you're working on a feature that will not be seen by the customer, you're destroying value right now. And software developer tend to value themselves a lot in the what's hidden, right? The back end, the robust is the infrastructure, you know, and what's visible, the front end, it typically is something that the, you know, it's not really important, that piece. And for us, we did the completely opposite. It takes a lot of pragmatism. And um, I I guess uh, you need to leave your ego out to some extent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because if you value yourself only in the quality of your code uh, by operating with aggressive prioritization, it's very uncomfortable because you're gonna cut corner on purpose on that code to go faster to revenue generation. But we knew, especially with the complexity of the business model, we were pushing forward that if we didn't have strong revenue traction, we would never get to the next funding round. It was too much of a step to ask investor to believe, right? We're hardware, there's no subscription, right? All of that was going against the principle of what VC loves to invest yeah. in. And right, sure. non-recurring hardware components in a commodity <laughs> market, aluminum extrusion, right? That makes no sense, right? So it's, yeah. it's a hard process to go through. When they see the units economic, they get it, but it, it takes a little bit. Of, so we went with this aggressive prioritization concept where, um, uh, you know, we really focus on what brings revenue in the bank account really, really quickly and eliminate everything else. Today, we have the luxury of making, you know, investments that are six months out, 12 months out. Uh, but if you go back to uh, 2016, 2017, it was the next two months. If it doesn't generate more revenue in the bank account in the next two months, we're not doing it, right? It's, it's just, yeah. it's not going to get prioritized ever. Interesting. It sounds very Steve Jobs-esque, you know, Apple-esque, like how is it providing value to the user, thinking about the user experience first, really before uh, any of that backend stuff that goes into it. Very yeah, so a lot of the backend was manual, actually, probably until, I don't think we had any accounting software or any like CRM until 2019. Everything was, <laughs> the, the front end was automated, but all the back end was very manual because it was not, from an investor perspective and so on, it was not creating value. Now it's not the case now, but... Uh, but we have to make those. Now you're some, patching sometime. all that up on the other side of it and, and going it's, back it's, in and making- It's pretty well patched now, I have to admit. It's pretty well patched, but, the, uh, sure. uh, but, yeah. um, but you when have to you make are, those trade-off initially. Remember, even when we met in like 2017 and some of the analytics that you have on, and which I, I want to get into a portion of you know metrics and things, because I think there are some really interesting things that you look at you're about your business that a lot of other companies, a lot of other people that you know will listen to our podcast have, you know, can relate to yeah, they could learn from. So, but uh, you know, so I do know that there certainly wasn't, there wasn't a lot of patching up compared to, compared to other companies that, I, that I've seen out there. Um, but I do have a question when it, when it came to kind of deciding on pricing the, you know, your hardware only and not selling your, you know, not marketing yourself as a CAD software and selling and selling that portion, or at least even framing that, or even making it a freemium, you know, I'm sure you're, you're, um, you're, you know what the term freemium means, but you know, how did you, what made you say, you know, I don't want to do this, you know, free model that also charges a subscription if they have advanced features and I'm only going to sell hardware as my avenue, you know, to make revenue, or is that something maybe you're considering in the future? Um, you know, how did you make those designations? There's several considerations that went into that decision of not to charge for the software but then, or not to go subscription by any means. And unfortunately, there's a belief that um, 
value is value, right? How you collect it, subscription or one time, typically doesn't change so much. Value is value. It's just the how fluctuate that value collection can be based on the the model you choose. Um, you know the um, for us, we always felt that if we do a good job at providing a simple software that leads to a design that will be, uh, you know, suitable and, you know, uh, that will give confidence to the client, the sales will come in. And that the fact that I don't charge my software enables me to have more people on the software. And I learned fast around how to make that equation work. So th those two things always came back in a sense that, you know, the cost of operating the software is not really high. The, um, if you think about just engineering software as a market is 15 billion. Industrial automation as a market is 150, right? So it's there's way more value to go capture on the hardware side of things than on the software side of things. Different margin, but even if you factor in for margin, the absolute dollar is like a tenfold on the hardware side of things than the software side of things. So we never felt that trying to monetize the software was of value. In fact, we felt that by giving it away, it forced me to align my incentive with my client. If I can bring them where they want to be, they'll buy from me. And, and that's a very fair and honest transaction. Um, so th that, yeah. that's how we thought about it. And they're this. getting something tangible. Getting something tangible, yeah. So we never tried to go after a subscription uh, uh, for, that, for that very purpose. We just didn't feel it, it actually create value. It extract value, but it doesn't create value that can be shared fairly between us and, and the customer. It would limit your upside user potential as well. The amount of users and the penetration in the market that you would have yep. of just number of users. And we can see that to be evident. I mean, there's plenty of partners out there that I know of that started using Vetching just to mock stuff up, you know, and they just kind of wanted a playground to go and try stuff in quickly online or to share designs or something like that. And over time, it developed into purchasing and everything else, making a true customer out of them. Well, it was that it was that in speed that, you know, made it so that it was readily available and that people started to use it from back in the early days of, well, that can be there next week. Great. Let's get them, you know, let's get eventually, we don't need to go and, and get this, you know, stand for a robot or jig fabbed up. It'll be there next week. And I can draw that up very quickly without having to send CAD files over to another company to then mock it up and then, and then send it back. And then I'd agree to it. And then they, you know, it'd be done in a month or, you know, six weeks from now. And so I think that, you know, that, that speed and ease of use that you brought into that market really changed the world for, for us and allowing one, you know, selling cobots that can be there from our delivery times being a week that made it, it just paired, paired really well. And so we saw a quick adoption because finally we had other products that allowed the robot to be installed faster paired uh, right to the robot making the, the relationship work. So that, I mean, it, that, that's, that's kind of where I, I, we first saw, saw interest. And I was amazed at the product then and, and only just to see the growth over the past few years has been amazing. So first of all, you know, congratulations on, on what you've been able to do. Um, but I, I'm, I can only be more excited about where you guys are headed. So yeah, uh, Chris, I know you have a few more questions on, on where, on where things are going. So I figured I'll, I'll let you go there and yeah, I think that subject of value is really incredible. Um, you know, so you, you basically stayed true to yourself, Etienne, and, and you laid down a, a number of principles. It was, you know, creating value for the customer. And you're seeing that if 
your value is charged up front or behind the scenes. It's really just a numbers game, you know, at the end of the day, and you're going to get that value to the customer and, and be able to get your, uh, you know, your price on that, no matter what. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty awesome. Um, so in terms of, you know, other subjects, I think uh, organizational structure at, at pension was very interesting to me. Uh, and when you, when you and Max were first kind of starting out, what were the first hires that you did? Did you go out and you hired a few more developers or did you go out and make that sale? You know, were you really striving to get your initial customers within that first year or were you, you know, trying to build a framework? Uh, it sounds like, and actually what you were doing is probably uh, value added stuff right away. So how did you kind of do all that? Yeah, in uh, in 2016, if you were to uh, you know partake in one of our board of uh, director back then, uh, we didn't have any financial, we didn't have any, rev any revenue, right? So what do you do in the board then? Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, we had this list of uh, ten hypotheses. Th those things such as will user want to self-assemble, uh, or you know will user decide to work with Lego parts? Uh, and so we had all those like this list of core assumption and and um, if one of them was was uh, uh, proven not true business model didn't work. Um, so we had 10 of them and that's what we were tracking. What have we done during the quarters to de-risk those 10 things? And for probably the first year and a half, we mostly work on them, didn't focus too much on revenue. And that's probably the, the cleverness and the wisdom of uh, Axel Bichar, our first VC, mm. that uh, give us the space to operate this way and really focus on cracking the business model more than um, just pushing for revenue uh, right away. One led to the other. Um, the second phase was now, yes, now we, we, we know this can work. To, we don't know the scale yet, but we know it can work. Um, and then how, how do you go about you know, developing your first client and so on when your product is not yet ready, right? You only have 70 parts. The CAD software works maybe partially in the front end, but not so much in the back end. And um, we were still doing a lot of manual tasks, especially behind the scene uh, until, the, like yeah, until it worked. Um, today, we're lucky most, you know, the flow is really automated today. We can even predict if a design is going to be bought or not well in advance of the transaction being made. But, the, you know, it was not true back, back then. Um, so a lot of our first, um, uh, our first hire, to go back to your question, we're actually on the software team. Still today, um, our software team is, is disproportionately bigger than every other team that we have at Vention. Um, between my software team and hardware team is probably kind of a seven to one ratio. Um, it, it's massive, right? It's really deep, the world. How many people do you have on the, the software team? So roughly we're around 140 right now at Vention, but it, it changed so, so so quickly, right? We were rewind back two months, we we're probably 120, so it goes it goes quick. Wow. Um, uh, but the, our biggest team is, is software, yeah. How many total employees in the whole company? 140, 140. now, yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. I, I, I thought you were yeah. saying 140 on software and, you know, sometimes we, we, we fluctuate with people and now we're back down to 120, so... Um, and I was like, that's how a, you, uh, way to say that you're letting people go, but now I see that that was not what you were saying. So that's good. No, in fact, yeah. even during the pandemic and COVID, we didn't let anybody go. We actually awesome. continued to hire, um, uh, uh, mostly on the product side of things. So yeah. And were you guys able to grow? Yeah, we had a pretty good year. Um, interestingly, our client mix shifted. We were, you know, Vention serve most manufacturing industries, automotive, aerospace, you know, robotics and others. Um, 
let's be honest, automotive and uh, aerospace uh, stopped pretty much in, in March until probably mm-hmm. mid-June. Um, so we, we still kept all of those clients. They still bought from us, but not at the level of previous year. Yeah. The client that really became uh, active this year are big tech company that are all have some sort of robotics or, for, you know, uh, roadmap. Um, industrial food company, industrial bakery, for example, that you know saw a big spike in demand because people are at home, they eat a little bit better than you know going to a restaurant, and as a result, those uh, companies have a lot of building material company, doors manufacturing, windows manufacturing. People mm-hmm. stayed at home, they started to renovate their home. Those doors and windows companies tend to be not very automated. So they start to deploy a lot of technology to automate because they saw a big spike in demand. So we did a lot of those projects. And obviously we did a lot of COVID uh, project, Mm. mask assembly, you know, uh, 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 security panel, uh, uh, you know, I I cannot even name how many healthcare related. We did assembly line for respirator uh, and ventilator and so on. So we did a lot of those things. But it shifts. So the client mix have shift quite a bit. All the clients are still active, but the mix of, of, of client and the top client has changed to reflect, uh, I guess, what we're all going through worldwide right now. Yeah, it's amazing. Your sales cycle is so short that you can see those pull on effects in those industries almost immediately. You know, like if you had asked some other probably OEM or equipment suppliers or whatever, they would be able to tell you the same thing, but maybe six months from now, you know, or something like that. But because of the way that your company is set up, you see those effects propagate. Huh. Yeah. yeah. And, and what, when you look at your, your revenue g- growth that you've had, you know, year over year, your first was your first year of, of real revenue in 2017, or was that not really till 2018? No, that was 2017. It was small, right? The, the value of a great home probably in Boston, but, uh, 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 uh that was the first year. Yeah. So we, um, one of the decisions that my co-founder and I took back then was uh, since the vention story was really hard to understand, there's so much pieces to build for the vision to come alive that we knew we needed revenue very quickly. So our time from inception to revenue was six months, right? So our mm-hmm. first sales was six months after the day zero, right? Which yeah. is pretty short. A yeah. lot of technology company will take a year or two years, even more of incubation before they actually go to market with their first product. Mm-hmm. Um, but we knew that we wouldn't have that luxury in the eyes of the investor. So we went for a very kind of quick to market strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so 2017 was first year and now we're just starting 2021. And uh, um, yeah, and, and the growth has been, uh, you know, pretty good. Cool. Zach, I think you should move into your metrics topic that has become a hallmark of something that he loves to ask. Uh, so you want to get to that? Yeah, what, what metrics do you look at? And specifically, if you could name, you know, if it's just one, that tells you what success you're having on a weekly, monthly basis that you really, that it might be more outside the box than, you know, obviously you could say revenue, but I think anybody could really say that. But I I mean, what metric do you look at to tell you the health of the business, you know, for now and and maybe projecting out a few months or, you know, the next quarter? Yeah, it's a a great question, Zach. The, uh... Running a, a startup or high growth business is is like flying a, a rocket ship versus flying a Cessna, right? So you, you need different indicator, right? The the indicator you have for Cessna is still relevant to the rocket ship, which is the rocket ship you need a little bit more, right? So obviously the, the first one will be the same as everybody else. You need to look at, at revenue and revenue and revenue growth is your legitimacy and enables you to 
raise the next round at a higher valuation. And at the end of the day, that's core. Nobody builds a real business unless you don't have real revenue with real margin at the end, right? Mm-hmm. And we're, there, there's a lot of, um, and there's the term called vaporware or phony business. That That's not the type of business we're trying to build. We're going to be around sure. in 20 years and 30 years. So this equation needs growth. to work. Yeah. Now, if you want to go super fast, you need to make sure that that next units of growth is still profitable. Yep. So you start to look at the margin of the margin. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where it starts to be more interesting. That next sales I'm pushing this month, is it still profitable for me to do it? Because the more I grow, the more I spend in, in marketing, and the more I spend in marketing, the more costly the next unit of marketing becomes. You know, The less efficient is my next sales guy versus... So all of those, the, the, the more you push the machine, the less efficient it becomes. Sure. Uh, and that's true with all startups. So you need to make sure that those um, this, this marginal uh, the marginal margin stays healthy, and there's a limit that you're not going to push further because now you start to destroy value. There's a point yeah. where growing too fast destroy value um, because you're going to impact metric that I care a lot about, such as uh, my user cohort, right? The user that I acquire in 2017 does this still buy from me, right? And and we look at those metric, you know, and and if I don't want to reinvent all my customer base every single year, which is going to be very costly because I need to reacquire everybody. Yep. I need to make sure those customers Continue. stick around, right? And for the customer to stick around, if you go too fast, you're not going to have time to build a great customer experience and a great product. So they're going to leave. And, and if you don't grow as fast, it's um, then you're losing investor legitimacy. So it's maintaining that balance between the two. And that, that's a hallmark of the cat industry, that kind of uh, metric on, on user and really all software sales, right? Uh, when you talk about Onshape or any of those, like if those companies, when Onshape was acquired by PTC, they talk about how much they paid per user of, yeah. their, of their and uh, And we software. use those metric as well, right? How much each user cost us, uh, what's our average basket by user group, by sales motion. So every, um, and, and so we can push the growth engine to the max where it's still profitable for us to do so uh, in, in a way that a uh, user will come back. Right. Um, so we look at every month, if, if a, a thousand new users start with us in a given month, how many of those are coming back the following month yeah. uh, on the platform? And we track all, all of that in a very methodical fashion. Right. Mm-hmm. How many- so that's software side. How do you bring that to, you know, at the end of the day, most of all the revenue you pull is from hardware. Right. So yeah. uh, is there a, a way that you can link the two and bring, you know, the run rates that you see on your software and user base and actually pair them up with what you see on the hardware side? Yeah. And that has been quite interesting because if you look at all CRM today and all technology to track sales, they're intended to work with a fixed product. If, mm-hmm. You know, so, oh, you have four or five SKUs. For us, every design that our client creates is different, Yeah. right? It's always changes. And the application is very specific to each client. And even a client from time to time, sometimes you're going to do something very complex, sometimes very simple. So how do you how do you track all of this? So we had to really merge um, some of the, what you call the SaaS playbook. And, and Chris, you alluded to it, like our SaaS company are scaling up with more e-commerce based company as well. Some of the practices that Amazon, for mm-hmm. example, will use and come up with a, a playbook that is honestly in between um, uh, where we do keep some of the SaaS metric, especially around user retention, court, net dollar retention, transaction retention. But we're also gonna use um, uh, e-commerce metric like basket size, basket size expansion, margin expansion mm-hmm. um, and given accounts and so on. So we had to write a lot of that, uh, of that playbook for, for ourselves, I guess. 
So how many active <laughs> customers do you have or how many customers do you get in a year? And obviously that's growing. Do you, can you share those, those numbers? Yeah. So the, we, um, we tend to differentiate between users and logo. Right, the logo will be an account, will be a company uh, mm -hmm. uh, that, that we serve. And at a given company, we have multiple users, sometimes multiple sites that we serve. Yeah. Right, uh, right now we're we're lucky enough we serve 1.2 thousand factories on, on roughly uh, five continent. Wow. And if you, um, uh, I feel very privileged being a manufacturing and product development geek to know what's going on in 1.2 thousand factories across the globe is very awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, you know we know what's going on in pretty much all the electric car companies right now. We know what's going on in, in some of the big tech company because they do design on the platform and obviously we see the transaction. And so it's, we're, we're feeling very privileged um, to, to be able to help those clients uh, execute their own roadmap. Um, uh, and uh, so, yeah, so to your question, Zach, yeah, around, you know, just a, a little bit over a thousand factories that we serve in an active fashion. That's awesome. And, and what is your customer retention rate of those factories. I know when we, when we chatted before the podcast, and I think some of the users might be interested to hear, but your retention rate, you said was rivals that of even Slack. And, you know, obviously Slack just got purchased for a massive amount of money, but some of their, how they approach customer retention is, is also, you know, really a very sought after uh, piece in the market. So I know that you're saying that your, your customer retention is really high. Um, can you talk a little bit about your customer retention rates? Yeah, so the, um, it's, uh, the concept of retention has so many definitions and so many metrics. So just aligning on the metric is almost a topic of, of intellectual discussion. But we yeah. like to track net dollar retention or net transaction retention. So if in a given year, um, if a, a client bought 10 units uh, or did $100 of transaction, how is that $100 change the following year? And you know, if you look at Slack, for example, just you know, Slack is, is probably running around 1.3 to you know, 1.4. And it's very due to the fact that they go after typically small company that grow very quickly. They're very young, right? So in my generation, they're very kind of digitally uh, fast digital adoption and we grow. So for, if I look at my Slack bill, for example, we started in 2017 uh, with probably five users. Today we're 140 um, and that use multiple services. So obviously our account has uh, probably sixfold. So obviously mm -hmm. Slack is very happy with our with our account. Um, the concept of Vention is, is similar in the sense that we're gonna start in one factory with probably one engineers that's gonna have a problem to solve. We'll use Vention for that problem. Uh, through this first project, you will probably add a, a senior engineer to review his design, probably a purchaser, probably somebody is going to assemble the equipment as well. So by the time that project is done, obviously we're, we're, we're able to have a, an account that probably have four, five, six users sometimes. And then the next project come, there's an internal referral that comes. So those accounts grow over time mm -hmm. from a user-based perspective and then transaction volumes and so on. And that leads to to a great retention that yes, can compete and even outperform some of the very good um, you know, a SaaS company as a, as a result of that. We don't awesome. see Vention as a tool that will replace everything. That's not the case and that's not our, but we see Vention as a t another screwdriver in the toolbox. And when that screwdriver is gonna be the right one, they're gonna think about, I'm gonna use Vention for that, for that type of problems. Um, so, and, and that has been, you know, it's a, it's a good screwdriver. It's a little Swiss knife. <laughs> yeah, Swiss awesome. knife is right. It's really cool. So I've, I've, oh. I have a formal leading question, but Chris, I think it, it's an, it'll be nice to end on my question. So I, I think mm -hmm. uh, 
I'll let you. We might be thinking of the same one. So. Okay, let's hear it. No, no, you, you go, you go. Okay. Um, so when you look out in five years from now, and we've always prefaced this question to every, every one of our uh, attendees and where do you see the market going for industrial automation, a, like a piece of technology? It could be a product. It could be a, a bigger, um, I guess, uh, industry. But really, when you look at automation, where what is going to change and where do you think we're headed? And, you know, as an example, I'll let Chris give a couple of examples because he does a better job than I do. But, you know, collaborative robots were maybe, you know, five or 10 years ago. And, and looking out and, and seeing something mm -hmm. something along those lines. And in the future, maybe path planning, manipulation, I don't know, like any of those kind of technologies around automation, what do you think is gonna be the one five to 10 years from now that's really gonna take the next big leap going forward? I'm gonna give you probably four items, uh, but I think there's an Good. umbrella team that is, is what I said before, right? The, the more people are automating today than it was has never been the case, and especially those higher mix, lower throughput factories, we don't have just a control group or an automation expert group, right? Uh, and to serve uh, those, those, those uh, factory, you need a product or a way that is way more self-serve than going through a system integration project, right? They need to be able to, you know, get their equipment quickly and deploy it by themselves. And mm -hmm. to get there, there's a couple of technologies that will be required to answer your question. I think one of them is just code free. Uh, a lot of the folks on the manufacturing floor today, the folks that operated the floor today are about to become the, the folks that will create the floor of tomorrow. Those, goes, those guys and, and ladies don't know how to code. Um, and Cobot tackled that problem heads on. Uh, I think code free will go beyond Cobot. I think that's one. Number two is, you know, robot has been cracked with Cobot. Uh, you know, uh, somebody who's just a manufacturing professional can now deploy a Cobot by himself, probably training himself in a day or two. You can start to create value with a Cobot after a day or two of training. Um, but nothing has been done for PLC yet, very little. Um, and I think that's the that's the next frontier. And the last thing to, to, to answer that question is, Manufacturing is really getting uh, cut and diced into use cases today. You know, a lot of people call them application or use cases, but the productization of those will make automation much easier. And a lot of people that you are is, is pushing for that. Vention has his own uh, application playbook, other player as well. But um, and it goes in various fields: traditional industrial automation, robotics, even manual work. If you look at platform like Tulips or VKS. They're trying to kind of uh, um, productize manual tasks to some extent to and automate them uh, with uh, with workflows and so. And so that productization will will stick around. So the productization of the individual tasks that are yeah. associated with manufacturing. Yeah. Very interesting. I like it. I love it. Cool. All right. Uh, I think that's perfect timing. Coming up on the top of the hour here, Etienne. We can't thank you enough for joining us. Uh, it's always an amazing experience talking to you. Your head is just full of so much amazing information. Uh, we thank you for your time. So that's it for this week on Robot Thought Leaders. Uh, tune in next week for the next guest. And uh, Zach, you want to say any last words? No, I just 
Thank you. I mean, you know, you're leaving me with like a hundred questions and the fact that I could interview for your, you interview you for another five hours. So I think that it's, uh, we'll have to have you back on at some point and, uh, we'll make sure to, we'll get right through the history next time and just get to even more uh, of these juicy questions. So, um, keep us posted with your successes and keep up the, the great success that you have been, and we'll be here to support you. And, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having cool. me guys. Take care. And on, uh, Africa note, Chris, I very much and Zach very much